Hey, Next on the T Nation, thanks for tuning in and listening to this bonus segment of Next on the T, featuring Michigan Golf Hall of Famer Terry Moore. And thank you very much for voting the show up to number two this month in the Podcast Magazine Hot 50 list for the June edition. Please keep voting. You can do so daily by going online to podcastmagazine.com forward slash hot 50. I really appreciate all of your support. Enjoy this segment of the show. Before I get to Terry, I want to talk to you about our friends over at Adele Golf. Is your driver adjustable? Of course it is. How about your irons? Didn't think so. Adele's new SMS irons give you adjustability in an iron to match your swing. These new irons come with three weights lined up across the back of the club. By moving the heavy weight to the heel, center, or toe location, you can match the club to your swing instead of vice versa. The result? Total control of the club face for more distance and accuracy. Your irons can't do this. Check them out online by going to adelgolf.com. Now next on the tee with me is Terry Moore. Terry is a member of the Golf Writers Association of America. He was the founding editor of Michigan Golfer Magazine and is now a columnist and travel writer for them. He is a member of the Michigan Golf Hall of Fame and now sits on their Hall of Fame committee. He is the founder of the Western Michigan Golf Show. He serves as governor of the Golf Association of Michigan and chair of their communication committee. He is portrayed in the current movie Phantom of the Open starring Mark Rylance and Sally Hawkins. And I am honored he is with me today here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Terry, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, happy to do it, Chris, uh, especially on this uh, nice golf weekend. Terry, I want to start our time with you by kind of going back to the beginning. When did you first fall in love with a game of golf? Well, I could say my parents uh, were responsible for that, Chris. Uh, we didn't live too far from a 36-hole public golf course. I could ride my bike down. So at 10 years of, years of age, I became a caddy at a public, a public golf course. And, of course, you can't beat learning the game by osmosis and watching the people. But my mom and dad played. My mom says she dragged me on her golf cart with her club when she was playing a nine-hole championship, and I kind of remember that. But my dad used to take my brother and I out to the driving range, and my dad was a golfer, had a lot of golf folks in the house. So it started at an early age, Chris. Uh, I got to give a lot of credit to my parents and my brother. We all were a golfing family. So that started it, and then I uh, kind of my I turned my advocation of golf into my vocation when we started Michigan Golfer Magazine in 1982. Uh, we're a big golf state, as you probably know. We we lead the country the number of public golf courses. So we had some success early on and uh, became editor and golf writer and uh, been very fortunate to cover the state of Michigan here. Uh, did a lot of, a lot of uh, Buick Opens and whatnot. And I also started a golf show in 1989-90, much like a lot of other communities have. And uh, we're not the biggest show, but we really pride ourselves on bringing a really quality show with instruction and headliners. And uh, so I've been, as my kids used to say, when they used to like show and tell with your parents what they did, my one young one young daughter said, yeah, my dad does golf. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So that pretty much sums it up. So it's been it's been a nice uh, nice career to have. Met a lot of great people, and uh, hey, enjoy talking to you today, Chris. Terry, I want to talk about some of the things that you launched that you just mentioned a moment ago. 
Let's let's go back to Michigan Golfer Magazine. How did you get a publication like that off the ground? Well, I was with the, kind of a, a bunch of guys that we knew each other from uh, education and whatnot. We started Michigan Runner uh, paper, uh, newspaper back in the 70s when everybody was running, including Forrest Gump. And that was a big hit because a lot of the 10K races back in the 70s and 80s, they needed to to attract the community of runners, community, and charity had a 10K race. So I always say we couldn't be dumb enough not to make it in publishing. <laughs> but that really funded that really funded Michigan Golfer. And we're luckily, again, we're a big golf state, a lot of resorts up north. So that gave us a, uh, a fund or an advertising base. It was basically a controlled circulation, about 25000 But we were also, Chris, oddly enough, we were probably the first magazine to put all of our content online in the late 90s. Um, we just saw that uh, distribution was always an issue. Um, so we put it online as well as in print. We're still going on today, a Michigan Golfer newsletter. We do occasional um, full, uh, full magazines on on uh, online, but it's still going today. I still contribute a column um, for it, and I still have been lucky enough to be credentialed for the Masters for 36 of them. So um, it's been a good career. So from there, right? You you mentioned you have a radio show. You you get the radio program going all about golf. How were you able to sell that in? You know that was the craziest thing. I got a PhD in radio clearance, uh, Chris, on that one. Uh, we started in, in the uh, early 90s and basically just did a short format, three-minute long, where we had a network commercial, so to speak, and we gave each of the affiliates a 30-minute show. And, it gave, you know, we just thought that uh, golf was getting big in, in uh, Michigan, and uh, so we kind of leveraged some of our contacts in the uh, business, and Tom Cleary was an excellent play-by-play, and and announcer from Grand Rapids, a golf buddy of mine, and I was kind of in charge of the business side and clearance. But, you know, we got up to about 40 stations in Michigan and Wisconsin, and, uh, you know, we had a good run. I think we had about six years with it, which is quite long in this business. Uh, so we learned a lot about that. But basically, we just had a short format, one topic per day, and uh, five days a week. It went really well. And uh, so between that and the and the West Michigan Golf Show and Michigan Golf, I stayed busy with the, with golf because a lot of people don't realize that, you know, uh, Chris, to be full-time in the golf business, you really have to do really either – if you work for, like, the big newspapers or golf digest, that's one thing. But when you're in regional publishing and from a state, you really got to do more than just uh, one thing. So, luckily, uh, I diversified and did a little radio, consumer golf show in the magazine, and lo and behold, it became a career. Terry, you've received a lot of honors in around golf, and um, I want to start by talking about the honor you received from the Michigan Golf Course Owners Association for your impact on the golf industry up there in Michigan. Had to feel good to be recognized by an organization like that. Yeah, I really did. I still remember that when I got that award uh, up at uh, Mount Pleasant. But uh, you know, obviously, our 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 uh, first field of vision, so to speak, was the public golf courses and resorts in Michigan. So we always had lots of reviews, and uh, we always thought, hey, what we liked in a golf course, other people would like. So we did a lot of that in our er early years of Michigan Golfer, 
And the other thing about Michigan at that time, Chris, was that we led the country, I think, three or four years in a row in the number of new courses opening in the uh, in the state of Michigan. We were averaging 12, 14 courses a year. Wow. Which obviously became a supply problem, um, but it was great for business and was and it was great to promote these new courses. Some of them, you know, were designed by some of the best architects in the world, Robert Trent Jones, Jack Nicholas, Tom Doe. So, uh, but anyways, back to your question. Yes, it was very gratifying to have the golf course owners recognize our, our small contribution to sizing golf. And a few years later, 2011, you're inducted into the Michigan Golf Hall of Fame. Doesn't get any bigger than that up there in your home state. What was it like for you to be recognized at that level? Well, that was just quite humbling. I can say it was, uh, my acceptance speech was quite easy, Chris, because all I did was spend my time thanking people to help me on the journey of, of golf. And, uh, you know, because I didn't earn it as a player, um, although I can get around the golf course pretty good, but the contributions that we played covering the game and promoting the game, you know, was very gratifying. I, I always took the perspective what I liked in golf, I think the average reader would like. Um, I never got away from that kind of standpoint. And I thought if I wanted to do a Q&A with a particular golfer, I think my cronies would, would do it too. But uh, I had a lot of people on the way, including my partners with the Michigan Golfer and and uh, Tom Cleary. And, and, you know, I had a lot of friends help me with the uh, the golf show in Grand Rapids. So, you know, uh, I hope uh, that I did it the right way and, and uh, made my parents proud and, and my friends proud how I conducted myself. Terry, speaking of the Michigan Golf Hall of Fame, talk about the Golf Management Learning Center that they have there at Ferris State University, which happens to be where the Hall of Fame is located. Yeah, that was a big undertaking for us, uh, Chris. Uh, we we had a temporary home in in uh, in Troy, Michigan, uh, and we had to vacate that property because the the management took the property back, and so we had to find a new home. And lo and behold, uh, uh, Ferris State University, which is home to the professional golf management program, where a lot of the PGA pros uh, go to school and learn a degree. Um, they had, they were planning to do expanding their clubhouse and a learning center. And so we fit nicely into their plans. Uh, we also helped raise about $2 million along with them. So now we have a permanent home. So anybody in West Michigan or going up north, they stop at Ferris State. We have a very nice, I, I think it's very nicely, uh, built as well as we have art, great archives from Various players from Michigan, from Walter Hagen to Kelly Robbins to Meg Mellon. Um, we also have our contributors, you know, other golf writers like Jack Berry, who was a pioneer in covering the sport here. So yeah, that is now a fruition. It's now in our third year up at uh, Big Rapids, Michigan, which is about an hour north of Grand Rapids. Terry, let's switch gears a little bit. And you mentioned this a moment ago. Let's talk about something near and dear to my heart. You've covered the Masters for 36 years as a credentialed member of the media. I've been on property for the last 22 consecutive years, still trying to get that elusive media credential. But I've been on the property, and it's my favorite place on the planet, as my listeners will tell you. What's it been like for you being able to cover the Masters tournament from inside the ropes? Everything about the Masters is done with such care, attention to detail, and it's first class. And that includes 
uh, covering in the media. You know, we're we're treated royally. I always say if we pay all the things they do for you, we may have to may have to kill you, Chris. But um, <laughs> it's, it, they, they treat us very well. You know, uh, I always enjoy going out to the golf course. You know, every day that I'm there, I want to get a feel. But you literally could cover the Masters based upon the TV monitors, the transcripts. You've got monitors at your desk with about six channels dedicated to the Masters, various holes, various groupings. Um, so it's first class in their presentation. But I would say it gets down to the drama in the history of the Masters, why it's so alluring. And it's, you know, the only championship that goes back to the same course year after year to the roars on the golf course. I mean, I literally remember I was in the stands uh, when uh, Louis Oosthuizen Oosthuizen got his double eagle in number two. And I was sitting next to somebody. We were on number five, Chris. And I said, hey, somebody double eagled number two because that sounds like an ace and there's no way you can ace number two or one. So, you know, it's little things like that. It's just, you just know where the golf course is. You know, even when you turn on TV, you know exactly what that hole is. Like I'm watching uh, this weekend, you know, Brookline, and I've been at Brookline. I was lucky to be there at the Ryder Cup. But, you know, you don't know that course, whereas the Masters, we all know every hole on the back nine, and we pretty much know every hole on the front nine because it's so well televised. So I think the familiarity with the Augusta National and the Masters just makes it so so enjoyable to cover. Do you have a uh, fam- favorite memory or two from the times you've been able to cover the tournament? Well, it's easy for me to say. It's, it's uh, 1995. I hope I got that right. It's a little fog. It's when Ben Crenshaw won his second Masters. Uh-huh. It's when his mentor, Harvey Phoenix, passed away early in the week. He flew back with Tom Kite in a private plane to be Paul Bears, and he came back to the golf course to win it, and he said, you know, Mr. Penick was the 15th club in his bag. And it was very emotional. Uh, I remember him breaking down into the arms of Carl Jackson, his tall caddy. And then the next day, Monday, uh, Chris, I got the chance to play Augusta National when my name was drawn in the media lottery. Wow. So for me, watching that emotional tournament and then playing on the same green, same course the next day, you know, that's my high point. But, you know, Tiger winning a couple of years ago, that's up there. Phil winning for the first time. Uh, I was there, Jack, in 86, to high memory, too. But uh, I guess I'll take uh, Ben Crenshaw winning um, and me playing the next day. I'm a huge Jack Nicholas fan. 86 is one of my favorite memories. Like, since you were on the property, what was it like being there that day? Well, it was it was electric. You know, you you do when Jack starts making those birdies on the back nine. You know, just it just a, a, it was electrifying. Yeah, the, one of the little secrets of covering the Masters, though, when it comes to the, the second nine, Chris, you really have to be into the media room. You have to be near the monitor because it's just too big of a uh, too big of arena to cover with too many foursomes. I should say pairings at that time. So I always say to my buddies, yeah, I'm like you in the last two hours. I'm watching on television, but I get the opportunity to go out on the golf course in the morning. And when they make the turn in the back nine, that's when I head back to the media room. Terry, let's start talking about the Phantom of the Open. 
Great new movie that's out. I got to watch it. I really enjoyed it. It's a true story. The main character in the movie is Morris Blitcroft. Talk about who he is and the premise of the movie. Well, I'll be uh, I'll be a little obtuse, only from the standpoint if your listeners haven't seen it, but I'm certainly going to tell the story. Um, for me, it's a 35-year-old golf story that suddenly has an act to it. Because in 1987, I played in this event called the Morris G. Flitcroft Springs Dag. It was named by my older brother, Tim, who was a member. I was a guest at that tournament that day. Our team won with a 59. It was a scramble. I had a hole one with a one iron. And lo and behold, you can't beat it when you have a hole one. You come in, you find that there's an open bar. <laughs> I didn't have to pay. For, I didn't have to pay for drinks or anything. It was even before uh, you know hole one insurance. I had the idea of something special for the 1988 tournament, and I did some checking with some people, and I said, you know, I'd like to pull something off with the help of uh, some friends and also British Airways, and I came up with an idea, and because of some of my contacts at the, the Masters with the British press, did some checking. Um, I'm not going to give it all the way here today, but just to say... Uh, Something special happened to the following year. Um, in 2009, I got an email from a guy named Simon Farnaby. And he was writing a book about Morris Blitcroft and his family. And he heard I had some, I knew Morris, what I knew. And I did. I, I presented him some material I had, a file on Morris. And, and uh, I didn't hear anything back. About, I didn't hear back from him to about a year when he sent me the paperback of the book called The Phantom of the Open. He wrote a nice inscription inside the cover and thanked me for the help I made with one of the chapters. I didn't hear about him, didn't hear from Simon until 2019, 2020, when he sent me a very terse but nice note. He says, hey, Terry, can I use your name in the movie? And I said, what movie? He says, well, they made my, my book into... I made my book into a screenplay, and they accepted it, and we're going to start the movie called Phantom of the Open. So uh, uh, that's how it all began. And, and Simon Farnaby, I like to say, he's the guy who had this. He wrote the screenplay for Paddington Bear 2, which was a big hit, 2017. And Chris, as they say in Hollywood, you don't really have a second screenplay unless your first screenplay was a hit. He did, <laughs> and that gave him a, that gave him leverage over Fan of the Open, and uh, and uh, now it's uh, in wide release. It's uh, in wide release uh, this week and next weekend. So tell our listeners sort of the premise of the movie. What's it about? The movie is about Morris G. Flitcroft, who sets the record of shooting 121 in the 1976 Open Championship in England. And he actually subsequently tried in other venues to become a British Open competitor. He was kind of found out, but he also used various aliases. He was an unemployed crane operator, shipyard, Vickers, and Barrow Inferness in England. So he's kind of like one of these uh, little anti-hero underdogs who wanted to make a name for himself, um, and he did in a way. I always say he was kind of like Eddie the Eagle, the guy that was the right the ski jumper from England in yep. the 1988 Olympics. 
he was kind of that kind of eccentric character, very harmless, nice sense of humor, very nice man. And so that's the premise of the movie because Simon read about him and grew up as a golfer, and he always named Morris Footprop to try to get in the British Open. Actually, at that time, he played very little golf. He never really he didn't belong to any clubs. He just wanted to play golf. So that's the premise of the movie. But there's some good subplots with his uh, with his kids, uh, two sons, his older son, um, and it works at various levels. It, as a matter of fact, it's even a bit a bit of a tearjerker, if you could believe it. So something you mentioned a moment ago, and I want to go back and revisit, because you talked about a hole in one that you made, right? 1987, you're playing in the in the member guest tournament that was in Morris's honor or named in his honor. Par three, fifteenth hole. You mentioned you hit a one iron for a hole in one. Yeah, it was one one ninety seven. I don't know if you back in those days, Chris. A lot of players, and I'm a single digit. I'm certainly not, you know, D one college player or any anything like that. I'm just, you know, I grew up in a golf family. But a lot of players were playing with pink one irons back in those days, and uh, so I used a one iron for an uphill one ninety seven, and I, you know. It, I still didn't believe it went in, and uh, my brother was playing two holes behind it. My one of the guys I played, hey Terry, your brother just had a hole one. Of course, what did my brother want to know? Hey, what did he hit? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, somewhat against the, that's against the rules of golf. You're not allowed to do that. <laughs> but he was a so, anyways. But it was a big hit, and then you come in, and then you know it's open bar. I don't have to pay for anything, and our team won. So that set my mind in motion about. Boy, can I do something? What can I do with the next year that would make this extra special? And uh, and that's kind of one of the little hinge points to the movie. And I don't really want to give it all away. And I even Simon Farnaby, I've chatted with him. He says, you know, Terry, you're kind of a, you're a tough one. You're kind of a walking spoiler alert. But so <laughs> I just tell people, just tell people, go see the movie. I think you'll love it. Even people who don't play golf, this movie. And I mean that sincerely. I'm not. Employed by Sony or this movie? Darn it! I wish I was. But uh, it movie works at several different levels. It's getting rave reviews. I think Rotten Tomatoes at one time added up to ninety-two. It's about eight in the high eighties now. So those are all based upon critics as well as average moviegoers. Terry, just a few more before I let you go. And Michael Capazzola is the actor who plays you in the movie. Talk about your interactions with him as he was preparing himself to play the role. Great guy. Yeah, it's a great story. He he contacted me um, two November two Novembers or Decembers ago when he got the part, and he's from Connecticut. He said he used to caddy. His wife took a job in London. He went with him. He's a stand-up comic and actor. Uh, does commercial work. He contacted me. Wanted a time with me. I don't have a big part in the movie, but there is a spoke, you know, I do have a speaking part and Mike did just a terrific job. Kind of got a feel for me and how I looked back then. And he FaceTimed me. We had several good conversations and uh, Mike gave me the first review after he saw it for the casting party. And he said, Terry, you're going to love it. It's a heartwarming movie. And, and, uh, our part in the movie, uh, is got kind of a pivotal. Uh, twist to the movie and Mike said you're really going to be proud associated with it and I am. I've had a chance to see it now three times 
one on the laptop and two on the big screen and that and you get a chance Chris I imagine you've seen in a uh like a special I, uh stream I have yes I have yeah get a, you get a chance go go see it in the big screen cuz I I've picked up some things in the big screen I didn't pick up in the movie I, I thought I was watching just for movie at the beginning cuz you you know you just was always we stayed in contact and uh I, I, like I said if it wasn't for travel circumstances he would be over here or I'd be over there for the movie. Terry, you mentioned a while ago Walter Hagen, and I read that one of your favorite quotes is from him, which says, I never wanted to be a millionaire. I just wanted to live like one. And it seems like that's come true that. for you. Well, it, it is. You know, or you can always say Andy Warhol predicted uh, 15 minutes of fame first, but I've been lucky with golf. I've had some fame, but I tell you, I've had such fun with this story. You never think something you've done, you did 35 years ago, um, would end up having a second story and even be filmed and you got a major motion picture. And like I said, what's so nice about it, it's not a splasher movie. It's, it's, it's a good heartwarming movie. Which, uh, matter of fact, I'm so proud. My two granddaughters were there, and they both came up to me and said how much they liked it. So, that oh. in itself, Chris, that made it that made it all worthwhile. No doubt, Terry. Before I let you go, I've heard about, and you've alluded to this uh, at the early part of the uh, interview, how great the golf course is up there in Michigan. And for years, my friend Mitch Lawrence, who hosted a travel golf podcast called Talking Golf Getaways that people can still find out there. It's still available on every major uh, podcasting site. But he talked about how great the courses are up in Michigan, like Harbor Shores at Benton Harbor. You mentioned, you know, a Jack Nicholas course or public courses like Water's Edge. For our listeners who aren't aware of how great the golf courses are up in Michigan, talk about Michigan golf. Well, it's, it's air-conditioned championship golf, all types of variety of golf courses. you got the Boyne USA courses who helped really launch the uh, Northern Michigan into the golf boom. You know, before Northern Michigan, was, you go fishing or you hunting or you go skiing. Ever Kirchner from Boyne says, hey, I got all these ski people. I want to keep them employed. So he hired Robert Trent Jones to do this perfect course called the Heather. And they've added on seven courses. But, you know, Jack Nicholas has the Bear, two major courses in, in Northern Michigan, both highly rated. Uh, Tom Doak has work in Michigan, um, both southern and northern. Um, so you got all you got some of the top designers. But I say for people who come from Texas or Florida, this is the place to come in the summer. This is a great destination. And also, since we're on the far end of the eastern time zone, Chris, we don't usually get dark until nine thirty, ten o'clock. So a lot wow. of people don't even start some of their golf till six or seven o'clock. You can get a whole round in it. And Arcadia Bluffs is one of our big game hunters um, on Lake Michigan. Terrific course. It's annually rated in the top 20 in the country. And then for private club aficionados, you've got Crystal Downs by Alistair McKenzie in Frankfurt. Um, it's one of the favorite courses of Ben Crenshaw. And, uh, you know, if you've got friends in the private club world, you might be able to get yourself on, particularly if you can wait till after Labor Day. Terry, before I let you go, how can our listeners stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, whether it's following you online or it's on social media? Well, uh, they certainly can friend me on Facebook. I do a lot of, it's uh, Terry Moore. 
in Grand Rapids. You can find me there. But also, I'm a contributor to the A position or T more like golf T T E E M O O R E dot com. I post all my stuff on tmore.com, and that's part of the A position. Like if you say, where'd you hit the ball? Well, I hit the ball in the A position. I'm no fairway. So uh, either of those two sources would people could find me. But I really enjoyed talking to you, Chris. As all I can tell you, did your homework, and uh, nice to talk to somebody so knowledgeable about the game. Well, I appreciate that very much, Terry. It's been a pleasure having you as part of the show. I hope we get the privilege of hey, catching up with you again sometime. I look forward. If you ever, you ever get around Michigan, uh, give me a buzz, okay? I'll absolutely do it. Terry, take care, my friend. Stay safe. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to having you back on the show again soon. Thank you. Take care, Terry. That is the great Terry Moore. Tmore.com. T-E-E-M-O-O-R-E.com is the website. The A position as well. And folks, you can go out there and see so much about Terry and his background and the great things he's done. Just te- just Google Terry Moore Golf and you'll find it all. Michigan Golf Hall of Fame. Boy, it doesn't get any better than that in your home state. And the movie, folks, again, so much fun. It's it, like Terry said, it's a heart warmer. I can't recommend it highly enough. The Phantom of the Open is the name. And uh, Morris Flitcroft is the story. It revolves around him. And it's about how he tries to get through an open championship qualifier to get in and shoots 121. And then uh, some hijinks happen and things of that nature. But true story. So it's fun to watch and amazing the things that he tried to pull off over the years uh, to get himself in the open championship. So it's a great movie. A lot of fun to watch. I highly recommend it. Look forward to having Terry back on the show again soon. 